you'll join me in Exodus chapter 20. We continue in our series, Ten Words, the Law of God. This morning we will look at the seventh word. The seventh word is that marriage matters. And it's Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. We'll look at in just a moment our key words for our worshipers in training, our husband, wife, and faithful. I want to share some lyrics to a song or some poetry for you. Let's see if you've ever heard this before. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Now perhaps such language makes you blush a little bit. Maybe you're wondering what in the world you've gotten yourself into this morning. But it's not because such language is wrong. In fact, the words I just read come directly from the Bible. They're from the Song of Solomon. And I will assure you there are many other passages in the Song of Solomon that are much more descriptive than what I just read. It does not take much imagination to understand exactly what kind of sexual intimacy the Holy Spirit had in mind when he inspired these words and many other passages just like them. And although God's Word is never, ever pornographic... It is unashamedly erotic at times. And if it comes as an embarrassment to you, I think it's because of what mankind has done to pervert sexual intimacy between married men and married women. Sinful man and his perversions has made sex something that's dirty. It's not what God has done in the Bible. It is what man has done in taking a great gift from God and making it into something that it was never intended to be. 
And we hardly need to look very far to find that sexual immorality is very common in our culture. People everywhere are looking for love. They're settling instead for sex. Did you know that on average, every individual American citizen views sexual material more than 10,000 times every single year? And by a ratio of more than 10 to 1, television couples involve individuals who are having sex outside of marriage. Why? Because sexual infidelity and promiscuity have become the norm in our culture instead of the exception. Now, of course, this is nothing new in the course of human history. We read many examples of this in the, in the text of Scripture. But today, more than ever, it's more accessible and it's more in your face. And there are websites and there are services that stand by ready to help you in your sexual sin of choice. God has spoken very clearly in His law against all sorts of sexual perversions. And it is because of these perversions that when we hear the beautiful words of Scripture being read about sexual intimacy, maybe we we wince a bit. Because sex and sexuality have, for so many, have been associated with sin instead of beauty and the glory of God. And so let's read the law of God this morning as we consider what He has to say about this gift of His for married men and women. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Very simple. Now what first is the prohibition of this commandment? As a summary, we can say that this commandment is an abbreviation prohibiting all sexual diversions and perversions. That is, everything that falls outside of the relationship between one man and one woman is the God-ordained institution of marriage. It is a shattering of the foundational unit created by God for all of society. So the seventh commandment forbids everything that causes adultery. If you recall from a reading of the Old Testament that in the civil law of God we see in several places that adultery was a sin so serious that the penalty was death. And while we don't stone adulterers to death today, it doesn't make the sin of adultery any less serious. So let's look more closely at it. Now, the Hebrew word used for adultery was never used... Uh, was all, excuse me, always used to refer to a violation of a marriage, even when it was used to describe the spiritual apostasy of God's people. Now, Paul alludes to this fact in 1 Corinthians when he explains that sex involves the whole man. So the implications of adultery are far and wide. And a brief study of history would prove very quickly that the seventh commandment has never really been all that popular. In our culture, marriage vows are tailored to suit personal preferences. Many see marriage vows simply as contractual with a clause for an easy out. 
to make it as low risk as possible, just in case it doesn't work out in the end. So instead of until death do us part, marriage vows for many have turned into until I don't love you anymore or have found someone else more intriguing. Contrary to the cultural ideas of marriage all around us, the seventh commandment insists that marriage matters. And it is a solemn and serious covenant uniting one man with one woman to become one flesh for life. Part of this marriage covenant is the gift of God called sex. God created it in the garden when he created Adam and Eve. And this is what he gave at creation when he created marriage. We read what God commanded at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That one flesh union is a coming together of a man and woman in sexual intimacy. And so, very clearly, we see in the scriptures that God created marriage. He created union between man and woman, and he has given to them this aspect of that union, which he called one flesh, sexual intimacy. And so adultery, stepping outside of that covenant relationship between man and woman, is prohibited by the command of God. We'll get more into that in a moment. I want to look at some other areas. As we've seen with all the commandments, there is more to the commandment than what meets the eye on the surface. We need to plunge the depths a little bit more and determine what else God is commanding here. As we speak about adultery in the seventh commandment, we must also see that God includes fornication. Now, just to be clear, what we're talking here about fornication is sex outside of marriage. And this is surely contained within the seventh commandment. The female companion in the Song of Solomon exhorts the young ladies around her several times. She says something like this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She's giving them a charge. The the girls around her should not allow themselves to be aroused sexually until the proper time and until the proper person arrives. The natural joy of sexual awakening is ruined by any kind of premature experimentation. And for a woman to awaken love before it pleases is to deprive herself of the full joy of experience of romance and sexuality with a husband. So we see very clearly the Bible does not shy away at all from the beauty and the joy that God has given in sex. But the Bible is also very clear that it has its place. It has its purpose. The place is the marriage bed. And the purpose is solely confined to the pleasures of marital union. So, single people, particularly teenagers, I hope you are listening. When you are in a relationship, the temptation will be, at some point, to ask one another, 
where's the line? How, how far can we go with this? Interestingly, it seems that so often where that line is happens to coincide with the limits of your own experience. And sex has really been redefined completely. It's departed entirely from its biblical definition and purpose. And this can be heard in these questions about the line. How far is too far? What can I do with my boyfriend or my girlfriend before it's considered sin? These are the wrong questions altogether. And they stem from two major problems. One is a wrong view of the gospel. And the second is a distorted view of the purpose that God has created in sex. Now, moralism teaches that one must be good and do good in order to please God. In other words, our obedience to God is what we do externally, and it really doesn't have much to do with the heart. And the questions we ask about things determine whether or not we understand what the gospel actually teaches. Asking the question of how far is too far is a question that is based on the assumption that God's primary concern is our external behavior. When the motive is for us to find that line, the line has already been crossed because the foundation is wrong. In other words, fornication has already been committed in the heart. Instead of asking, is it lawful? The question, according to the Apostle Paul, should be, is it profitable? Or am I enslaved to it? Outside of marriage, sexual intimacy is never lawful. But perhaps what should be more compelling is that sexual intimacy outside of marriage is never profitable. In other words, there is no way whatsoever, ever, at any time, to bring God glory through fornication. It's not possible. Now, the gospel, on the other hand, sets us free to walk in the newness of life that transforms the way we look at things, to include sex and sexuality. As God sanctifies us, our focus turns from, what can I get out of this? To, how can I best serve and satisfy my spouse? Which in turn is honoring God. So the gospel response is, how in this relationship can I best honor the person to whom I am not yet married? Very simple answer. Remember... Your future spouse, before you marry them, is first your brother or sister in Christ. And they do not yet belong to you. And until then, hands off, lips off, don't even go there. If you're single, I hope you hear this. The goal is not to get to your wedding vows as a virgin. That's a low standard. The goal is to get to the wedding vows completely pure and undefiled by sexual sin because the foundational motivating question all along was how can I glorify God the most? 
Sex is a gift from God to be cherished within marriage. And it glorifies God when we honor it within its proper place and not outside of it. And so we must ask all along, how is God being glorified? What am I doing? How am I checking my heart to ensure that God is glorified? That's the question to ask on our way to marriage. Now, in addition to fornication, the seventh commandment also includes all other forms of sexual perversion and crime, homosexuality, bestiality, rape, incest, and polygamy, to name a few. It's also important within the seventh commandment that we remember, as we've considered with all the previous six commandments, that the law of God governs not just our external actions, but even more so, most importantly, our inward thoughts. It covers both the deeds of our body and the desires of our hearts. So for the seventh commandment, the issue of what is forbidden in our hearts is lust. John Calvin wrote, And let him who does not touch a woman not flatter himself, as if he could not be accused of immodesty, while in the meantime his heart inwardly burns with lust. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we lust when we read sexual literature like romance novels. We fantasize about relationships that include sexual intimacy when we make suggestive comments to others or engage in coarse sexual joking. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And of course, perhaps the most common lust in our culture is the lust of the eyes. Indulging the flesh through the eyes and through imagination. And more specifically in our culture, through the absolutely horrific industry of pornography. Statistics say that 50% of American men and 35% of women are Addicted to pornography. By the age of 11, 90% of American boys have already seen pornographic images. By the age of 14, as many of, as 80% of those boys are seeing pornographic images at least once per month. Now, we could isolate this issue of pornography within the seventh commandment and focus on its destructive nature in homes all across the world, all by itself. Pornography has become the greatest tool of Satan to destroy marriages, to defile children, and in many ways to tear apart even Christian churches and to carry many men and women to allow their hearts to chase after more and more and more sexual stimulation because after a while what we have is not enough. 
Pornography creates unrealistic expectations and pressures within a marriage and it leaves the other spouse feeling completely inadequate, completely violated. I want to say this very quickly. Given those statistics that I just shared, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that some of you sitting here right now are regularly using pornography on a daily, maybe, weekly perhaps monthly basis. I want to encourage you to get help, to get accountable, whatever, whatever means is necessary. Get away from wherever you access it and don't look back. You won't just wake up one morning and decide you don't like it anymore. You need help. And I, for one, am willing to do whatever is necessary to help you. You're not able to hide. It's not private. Numbers 32.23 tells us you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Lust has many unhappy consequences. The biblical authors remind us that lust is expensive. It will cost a man his money. It may even cost a man his life. I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs six twenty five and 26. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but the adulteress hunts down a precious life. Proverbs six twenty seven. Giving into lust is like playing with fire. Solomon asks the question, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Proverbs six thirty two and 33 tells us that lust leads men and women into shame and disgrace. But worst of all, lust can bring us under the mighty wrath of God. The writer of Hebrews tells us, let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. See, the Bible as a whole from beginning to end is very clear about sexual perversions. Proverbs carries more warnings against the sin of marital unfaithfulness than against any other sin. As Solomon writes in Proverbs six thirty two through 35, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Adultery of every kind is the epitome of foolishness. So the seventh commandment forbids any sexual activity that violates the marriage covenant, period. No exceptions, no loopholes. Why? Why is adultery in every form forbidden by God? Again, it's not because sex in itself is bad. It's not at all. In fact, adultery is forbidden... Because in its proper usage, it is designed to be a very powerful force for good. 
And to use sex wrongly is to defile one of the things that God has given to bring himself glory. It is a defiling of what God has given to display his goodness and his love to his people as they enjoy him through what he has given them to enjoy one another. Now, as we've seen with all the commandments, whether they're negative or positive, the opposite also exists. So we've considered the the negative prohibitions of this command. What is the positive element of this command? It's simply this, that marriage is created by and for God. And within that marriage of mutual love and respect, the seventh commandment requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally, spiritually, and sexually. Now, marriage, or marriage and family, is one of the two institutions that God has created. God created the family, and he created the church. When Paul taught about the husband and wife relationship in Ephesians 5, he referred to the example of Christ and exhorted husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. In Romans 7, Paul makes clear that only on the death of one partner would the other be free to remarry. The apostle's jealous care of the church at Corinth is expressed in the vivid metaphor he gives in 2 Corinthians 11. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so you see the language being used there in relationship to the church of God. And the marriage of God's people. There's a union between husband and wife that is intended to exemplify the exclusive relationship between God and his people. Between Christ and his church. And so in many ways there's something very transcendent about our sexuality. There is something inherently theological about sex. It is intended in one sense to motivate our gladness in God for the great gift that he has given us. And it motivates our worship. In the same way that God has given himself to us, he wants us to give ourselves to him. Throughout the Old Testament, God often compares his relationship with his people to romance between a husband and a wife. And when his people committed themselves to another god or, or flirted with the worship of the pagans, God pronounced that they were guilty of committing spiritual adultery. This is a powerful illustration because of how serious God takes faithfulness in a covenant relationship. And so one of the positive elements of this commandment is that God wants marriage to be preserved as something that he has created, something he has designed to be a representation to the world of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. Now, sexual union and gratification in marriage is good, it is right, and it is commanded. God has created sex within marriage for procreation and for recreation. Now, two virtues that every marriage demands are submission and sacrifice. 
They are also the virtues that bring joy to marital union. Particularly in sexual union. When a husband and wife are simultaneously seeking to outdo one another in submission and sacrifice, the sexual intimacy between them will be satisfying and it will be sweet. The biblical view is that sex is not merely procreational, but it's also relational. It's also designed by God for enjoyment. It is for love and pleasure and joy. So the seventh commandment is designed to protect the God-given purpose of sex within the covenantal confines of marriage. Adultery is marital infidelity. It is very simply sexual interaction of any kind that breaks the bonds of this covenant. So the primary purpose of the seventh commandment is to protect marriage because marriage matters. And it protects marriage by protecting that which is strictly forbidden outside of marriage. Namely, any form of sexual interaction. It is essential to a healthy marriage. Now, as a part of this, the Reformers and the Puritans wrote about what they called sexual fidelity. They interpreted this to mean not only that each spouse had to refrain from sexual relationships outside of marriage, but that each one owed the other regular sexual interaction. They also referred to sexual abandonment or a spouse's refusal to engage with their spouse in sexual interaction. And they called this a form of adultery in itself. How so? Well, because sexual interaction between a husband and a wife is essential to the ongoing health of their marriage. This is the reasoning that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He writes, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is very clear, right? Husband and wife sex is a right, and it is due to one another. And depriving one another of this right is only setting up conditions for Satan to bring about temptation. In some marriages, one of the spouses simply refuses to share. And this goes beyond sex. This might include personal interests, concerns, dreams, problems, hopes, fears, whatever it is. This is another form of desertion. Though the husband and the wife may, may actually be physically present together, there is an absence of partnership and genuine covenantal interaction. It's particularly difficult in cases where both partners are strong-willed and very self-concerned. It is a form of adultery. And it's tragic because marriage is designed by God for godly people to give of themselves in both body and in soul in time and possessions. When we get married, mine becomes ours. It's the only form of legitimate biblical communism. 
What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. There is no difference. Now, before we press on, at the risk of oversimplifying, the most basic answer to preventing adultery in all its varied forms is this. Husbands, love your wives in a sacrificial way. A husband's spiritual leadership is fundamental for everything that happens in a marriage, including what happens in the bed. Of course, wives have an obligation to their husbands, including a sexual obligation. But I am willing to stand here behind a statement that the vast majority of Christian women will gladly and joyfully walk in their duty to God and their husbands as a wife when their husband is faithfully loving the bride of his youth. Husbands, love your wives. That's how our marriages are protected. With that said, there are very specific commands given to those who are married regarding sex. 1 Corinthians 7, 3, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. This is where the Bible emphasizes mutual submission between a husband and a wife. Remember, Paul writes, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So husbands and wives must submit themselves to one another in what the Puritans called the mutual communication of bodies. It's such a way with words. This is our marital duty. But it will always be a chore if a wife is not cherished by her husband. The key to a happy marriage, sexually and otherwise, is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Memorize it, write it down, remind yourself every single day. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is no happiness in your marriage outside of that. It is our calling. It is the cement that holds us together. Now, I want to consider a biblical example that we are given in relationship to the seventh commandment. It's a very well-known story of David and Bathsheba. And as we consider this, I want to point out a few things that perhaps we've missed We all know David was the king of Israel. We read in 2 Samuel 11 that one night David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And that warm spring evening, David had everything a man could want. He'd conquered his enemies. He'd established his kingdom. He was living in royal luxury he was famous. He was, he was handsome. And more than that, the Bible tells us he was a righteous man, a man after God's own heart. He wrote beautiful hymns, many of which we have in the book of Psalms, hymns of praise to the God who had promised him an eternal kingdom. But as he strolled around on the roof, David was the master of all that he surveyed in the land. There was nothing more for him to gain, but he still had everything to lose. 
tragically, David had exposed himself to temptation. Now, walking around on the roof seems innocent enough, but there's a little piece of the story that we so easily miss. David had no business being on the roof of his house in the first place. He should have been out defending his people in battle. Instead, he was walking back and forth, going nowhere, killing time. And the story of his tragic downfall began with these menacing words in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. We learn a lot more with those very simple words than where David was physically. We learn where David should have been and what he should have been doing. His nation was still at war. And as the king, it was his duty to lead his armies into battle. But instead, David decided to kick back and take it easy. When the Bible tells us he remained at Jerusalem, it's intended as a rebuke. Here's what it teaches us. When did David begin to fail? When he stopped serving, sacrificing, and giving his life away for others. And instead, he turned into himself. So it's not at all surprising then that this is when he indulges in sexual sin. A godly man does not live for himself. A godly man lives for others. And as a result, he is enabled to keep his sexual desire under the power of true biblical love. But when a man turns inwardly, his godly manliness fails altogether. He's vulnerable to all sorts of sexual temptation. So the story of David reveals the tragedy of the long arm of sin's consequences. And this is key insight for anyone who struggles with sins against the, sec- the, the seventh commandment. Sexual sin is never just about sex. It is always connected to the rest of your life. David would not have ever committed adultery if he had been doing what God called him to do. Instead, he got lazy with his responsibilities as a king and he retreated to his palace and he handed it off to someone else to take care of. And so there, in his idleness, in his isolation, he gives in to temptation. This shows just how vulnerable we are to sexual sin when we are living for ourselves instead of others. What we do with our bodies is not just a about what happens physically, but also spiritually. It comes from the deepest desires of our hearts. And so one way we see in David's life, one way that we can gain victory over sexual sin is to live self-sacrificially rather than self-indulgently and to do so in every area of our life. Godliness in one area promotes godliness in all other areas. And so when David stopped giving himself away in love for others, he made a strategic blunder that only compounded his sin more and more. 
1 Samuel 11, verse 2, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The sin was not that David saw her bathing. If all he caught was a glimpse, he immediately turned his eyes away and sought to divert his mind, perhaps he would have been okay. But that's not what he did. His glance became a gaze. He stared at her. He looked at her up and down, thinking about what he would like to do with her. And the more David looked, the more David wanted what he saw. Sin was starting to take control. And as David began to fantasize, he found himself unable to turn away. Rather than fleeing from temptation, he did what Paul describes in Romans thirteen fourteen as making provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he toys with the possibility. Second Samuel eleven three, the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's it, David. Stop right there. She was a married woman. That should have ended it for him. Giving her any more thought was out of the question for a man of God. But David just felt like he had to have her. Bathsheba had become an obsession to him. And that's the way lust works, isn't it? It takes on a power of its own, pulling us deeper and deeper and deeper until we have this feeling that we can't resist. And since David was the king, he could do what most can only dream of doing. If David wanted the woman, she was his. And so he did. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And this was no small thing. The arm of sin's consequences stretched even further. Bathsheba soon discovers that she's pregnant. So David begins to try and cover it up. And by the time he was finished with his attempt to cover his sinful tracks... Bathsheba's husband was dead. The king was not only guilty of adultery, but also of lying, of stealing, and of murder. And for a while, it seemed like he might get away with it. He had to scramble a bit to make it happen, but everything was working according to his plan, except for one thing. Verse 27 says, The the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Like we all so often do, David forgot that the eyes of God were watching him. It seems harmless to engage in a little sexual fantasy. Maybe look at some pornography or flirt with a coworker. Maybe exchange a few emails with an old classmate you reestablished a relationship with on Facebook. You know, I've not met a single person on the guilty side of an adulterous relationship who saw it going the way that it did at first. At first, it doesn't seem all that harmful. Who will know? Just keep quiet, pretend like nothing's going to happen. Besides, it's kind of exciting. It's exhilarating. God always knows. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs... Why should you be intoxicated, my son, 
with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God sees everything we do with our bodies. God knows everything we engage in with our minds. And God will hold us accountable. Again, we can consider the question that Solomon asked in the Proverbs. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? David soon answered that question for himself. From the moment the king decided to act upon his lust, his life became a tragic series of disappointments. He lost almost everything he had worked so hard to have. The son he had with Bathsheba died. David's family was torn apart by rape, by incest, and by murder. His kingdom was divided. His son rebelled against him and even had sexual relationships with David's wives on top of the palace, bringing shame into his household. All for what? All for the sake of a few minutes in bed with a woman he saw at a distance and just had to have. Was it worth it? No. Well, let me ask you, what about your sexual sin? What are you gaining? What do you have to lose? I'm going to assume like every other person I've ever talked to in sexual sin, the gain, whatever it might be in your mind, is far less than the loss. If you are in the midst of some sexual sin, right here and right now is the time of repentance. There will be no faithful, healthy, joy-filled spiritual life where there is unfaithfulness in marriage. What you do with your mind, what you do with your eyes, what you do with your hands. And for Christians to engage in any form of adultery is to violate the holiness of their union with Christ. We show our covenant loyalty to God by maintaining our sexual faithfulness to our spouse or our future spouse. And so I want to plea with all of us to pursue purity, to pursue accountability. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, the Lord Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you would lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Don't go to hell because you want to save face and look good. Go to heaven without your hand. Go to heaven without, with your eye plucked out. It's far greater. It is far, far greater to go to heaven maimed. You'll get a new body anyway. You see, Jesus made this issue of adultery an eternal issue. There is no human cure for adultery. It's not less offensive because our culture says it's no big deal. 
Just because media and television romanticize it, politicians and celebrities are constantly engaged in it, the church goes soft on it, it doesn't become less offensive to God if it all works out in the end when your new relationship is formed because of the adultery and it's better and you feel happier in the end. That doesn't make it okay. Remember, God commanded that people be stoned to death for such an act. He takes it very seriously. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not go to heaven. Very clear. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. You see how serious this is? Let me be very clear about what the Apostle Paul has written. Sexual deviance is damning. Adultery, fornication, lust, they will send you to hell. But listen to what else the Apostle Paul writes. And this is what I love. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he tells us exactly who that is. But then he tells the Corinthians, and such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's good news. There is no human cure for adultery, but through His cross, Christ Jesus can forgive any sin and reconcile us to our Father and to the partner we have offended. So often, when we break the seventh commandment, we feel so guilty, we feel so dirty and defiled that it's all that we can do to drag ourselves back to the cross when what we ought to do is run back to the cross. Confess our sins to Jesus. At the cross, we can find a sacrifice for our sin with cleansing for our guilt and the power to start living again in Christ. Now, while each man sins against God in various ways, his response must always, always, no matter what it is, we must always respond the same. Jesus is the answer. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Sexual immorality is devastating on multiple levels, but but the grace of God in Christ Jesus is far greater. The shed blood of Jesus is both our motivation for purity and our motivation for obedience and our sure hope for eternal life. No man will address Jesus pure and undefiled. And praise be to God that that is not his request. I know there are probably some of you here this morning who are having conversations with someone who's not your spouse that you don't need to be having. Some of you might even be engaged in an adulterous relationship right now. Perhaps some of you are addicted to pornography. 
whatever it is, I want to tell you, it is not beyond the forgiveness of Christ. If you are a Christian, Jesus has already been stoned on your behalf. The death penalty that is yours has been paid in Christ Jesus. But listen, if you don't repent and turn from your sin, it says a whole lot about your heart. You need to check your heart. If you're not willing to make war with your sin and cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, you need to ask yourself, what's most important to me? Why am I willing to go to hell for the gratification of my sinful flesh? Don't try to clean yourself up. Run to Jesus. This is the call of the Bible. Run to Jesus. Repent of your sin and run to the cross. Jesus is a merciful Savior and His cleanliness and His purity can be yours. Run to Jesus. That's our hope. He is our hope. I'm going to close with a quote, the words of great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, Even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside his kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven, and I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your powerful, transforming, convicting word. Your word that brings purity. Your word that brings life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning, for all of us, that you help us. Lord, we are so fragile. We are so weak. We are so prone to wander and to make provision for our flesh. Help us to fight the fight to run the race and to, by whatever means necessary, keep ourselves from sin. And when we do sin, Lord, help us to recognize it immediately, to repent of our sin, to be accountable to our other brothers and sisters, that they would help us, that they would encourage us. And help us not to crawl, help help us to not walk, help us not to jog, but help us to run with all of our might to the cross of Christ, that we fall before Jesus and we delight in the true joy that is ours because He was our sacrifice, because He is our hope, because He is our perfection and our joy. Lord, for anyone here this morning who is wrongfully engaged in a relationship, 
and what they are seeing with their eyes, what they are contemplating in their hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and that you would help them to delight all the more in Jesus. Remind us all, Lord, in our temptations for sin, remind us that the joy and satisfaction that we have in Jesus is far greater than anything that we can find this world has to offer us. Anything that we can find in this world that might bring us some temporary satisfaction. I pray, O God, that you help us in this devastating, treacherous sin that we instead look to Christ. We remember that marriage matters and that you are glorified when we protect that covenant union for your glory, that we might have an abundance of joy in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, help us. Thank you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.